over the summer, we're in a series called Encounters with, G- with Jesus. And today we're looking at the occasion where Jesus meets a woman caught in adultery. Today we're going to find good news for the shamed. We're going to find rest for the striving and to see how mercy triumphs over judgment. We're going to be in John chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, um, if you'd like to turn there in our church Bibles, you can grab one from the sides or, or at the back. Um, we're on page 1073. Just before we do read the passage, I'd like to just take a moment to, to note, if you have one of our church Bibles, um, you'll see that this passage is in italics, and there's a note before it. So here we see that this is one of the sections in Scripture where there's debate, as it doesn't appear in some of the earliest manuscripts. And this gives us a a wonderful opportunity to think about why we can trust the Bible, why we can be confident in the Bible that we hold in our hands or scroll through on our phones. Um, The scholar F.F. Bruce comments that there's no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. So here we go. We are going to have a moment together in um, textual criticism and textual attestation. So that will help you if you're out for a picnic later on, a good just to drop into your conversations. So um, we're going to have a, a quick look at some of the ancient writings and manuscript evidence. Again, this will help for conversations over your picnics. So we've got the table that, that comes up. So here we have a, a number of um, ancient writings. You've got there uh, Caesar, you've got Tacitus, you've got Homer. I'm sure all of these are on your holiday reading list um, for the coming weeks to sit on the beach and, and read some of these. Um, but these are a number of ancient writings. And just have a look for a moment um, at when they're written and when we have the earliest copy. Most of them, there are 1,000 years, um, 1,200 years. The shortest difference from the time it was written to the earliest commentary, uh, earliest copy for something other than the New Testament is 500 years. But you can see there, from the New Testament, the span is only 25 to 50 years. And then on that final common column, look at the number of manuscripts that we have. Mostly we have 10 or under, but for the New Testament, there's a staggering 24,000 uh, copies of the manuscript. And so this helps us to know that we can have real confidence that what we have in front of us, what we have in our hands, um, is the text of Scripture because there are so many different manuscripts that you can compare with and make sure that what we have here is what was originally uh, written down. Um, Okay, you can take the the table down unless you want to note a few more down for your holiday reading, which you're welcome to do. Um, There are a few passages in the Bible where there's debate as to whether they were in those original manuscripts. And this one that we are coming to today is is one of those. It's important to note that where there is debate about some of these passages, none of them have impact on on the doctrine um, uh, that we would believe. There's nothing that would cause any area of debate. And also, I think the fact that these verses are referenced in our Bibles shows that we have real confidence in our text. There's no insecurity around the manuscript evidence. As if you're kind of worried about this, you wouldn't make a a note of it. You wouldn't say, just so you know, this is, um, there's some debate around this. So what are the the challenges around the passage we are looking at in in John chapter 8? 
Well, as we've seen, it's not in some of the earliest manuscripts, and the earliest church fathers often omit this passage. Even if you're just reading uh, John, the Gospel of John, there's a, a flow from John 7:52 into John 8, verse 12. Some ma- manuscripts, this passage also appears in, in a different place, other parts of the Gospel of John or in, in the Gospel of Luke. And also, it's noted that some of the language here is different to the rest of the Gospel. So, why is it here? Why is it included in uh, our Bibles? Well, scholars agree that the story likely did happen. It was a real event in Jesus' life that had been circulated. There was a huge oral tradition of what Jesus did. And so this is one of these uh, occasions, and it's been been written down, but not included um, in all of uh, the different manuscripts. It's been placed here likely to illustrate the point that Jesus doesn't bring condemnation or judgment. He desires mercy and not sacrifice. As already noted, it doesn't bring any new or different theology that's contained elsewhere in, in Scripture, but we can use this powerful story to see the other Jews that are clearly outlined in the Bible. So let's read um, John chapter 8, and verse 1. So you can look in your Bibles, it will come up on the screen as well. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered round him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So what we're seeing here is the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are threatened by Jesus, and they're trying to find a way to to trap him. We've been familiar with this in recent weeks, haven't we, looking at the Conservative Party and as they've been trying to choose the next Prime Minister. In leadership debates, they're aiming to bring down one another with a killer question. So you may remember Rishi Sunak asking Liz Trust, are you most embarrassed about being a Lib Dem or a Remainer? Uh, It's a classic trap, like how can you answer that question? Or you might have noticed questions about the cost of Liz Truss's earrings, which are reportedly £4.50, versus the cost of Rishi Sunak's suit, which is apparently £3,500. which must have been a nice suit. Yeah, very good. I don't know if it's worth three and a half thousand pounds. But what they're trying to do is to bring them down with that key question, how can you answer this? They're trying to discredit them and to neutralize their opponent. This is exactly what the religious authorities are trying to do to Jesus. They're trying to embarrass him and to catch him out. They're aiming to bring that unanswerable question that would sink him. So we have a woman who's been, brought, uh, been caught in adultery. 
And if Jesus says that she should be stoned, this would cause trouble with the Roman authorities. Only they have the authority uh, to pronounce a death penalty. Uh, Also, it would uh, go against Jesus' reputation of of compassion uh, and may lose him support. But if Jesus said that she should be set free, then he'd be open to the accusation of not upholding the law of Moses. So when Jesus comes to answer this question, what's he going to do? Is he going to choose to be arrested or is he going to choose to be discredited? Is he going to choose Moses or Rome? And in both scenarios, the the Pharisees win. Imagine their campaign team being really happy with the formulation of this question and can't wait for the answer that Jesus is going to bring. But Jesus, as so often, brings an answer that no one expects. He says, whoever is without sin should be the first to cast the stone. It may have taken a moment for that to register. The opponent's trying to think of a a clever response to what Jesus says. But they see he's upholding justice. He's not minimizing sin. He's saying, yes, there needs to be a just punishment for sin. But he's also showing mercy. He's not bringing condemnation. He's also showing that everyone is in the same condition. All have sinned and have fallen short. Jesus brings mercy for sinners. It's why he came. And firstly, I want us to look at how he has come for the shamed. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees were not aiming to bring justice in this situation. They were not really concerned about the law that had been broken. They were really trying to bring shame. They bring shame on the woman. She had been brought out in front of everyone, standing before the group. And the immediate question is, where's, where's the man? Adultery is not something that you commit by yourself. Why is there only the woman here standing before everyone? They want to publicly shame her. And this is bad enough, but that isn't actually their, their real heart. Their main motivation is trying to embarrass Jesus. They wanted to shut him down, to stop him teaching and drawing people away from them to follow Jesus. Jesus was undermining these teachers of the law, their authority, and gaining too much popularity. So maybe they thought that a public stoning would be the right way to bring him down. Maybe they thought that they would be, um, it would discredit Jesus in front of everyone. But according to the law of Moses, committing adultery was punishable by stoning. And in our cultural context, this seems incredible. Where sex outside of marriage is the norm, how could public stoning be considered? But to help us with this, I'd like us to consider something of, of the nature of God. Andrew Wilson, in his book, Incomparable, asks a question. He says, what do you think the most central truth about God is? I'll just pause for a moment. I wonder how you'd answer that question. What's the most central truth about God? You might think he's powerful or he's wise or generous. Well, Andrew Wilson says, if you ask a theology student, they might say omnipotence or providence. If you ask someone on the street, they might say love. But what if you ask the angels who dwell in his presence? Well, we can see in both Isaiah and Revelation the response what the angels say. They would say one thing, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. 
Wilson goes on to say that we get to overhear these angels in, in two occasions. And these two instances are separated by 800 years. But they are saying the same thing in both. They're so overwhelmed by the staggering holiness of God. Presumably, he says that they've been saying it ever since, are saying it right now. God is holy, holy, holy. He is completely other. He's sovereign. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. He's completely set apart in a category of his own. He's high and lifted up. He is pure and powerful. He is not dependent on anyone or anything. And it's the kind of thing that we often know, don't we? If you say, is God is holy, yes, I, I see that. I see that he is powerful. But how often do we allow that to shape our lives? And I think it's something that we need to be continually reminded about. We have a, a glimpse of his awesome majesty when we look to creation. And this is one of the images that's come back from the James Webb Telescope, which have produced stunning results. This one is entitled The Dance of Five Galaxies. It's a wonderful title. And wonderful as we see um, how God has formed the universe. Because in our galaxy alone, they're estimated to be 150 to 200 billion stars. And we're one galaxy among some 150 billion others. And this is growing all the time. Even using this telescope, they're finding galaxies they didn't know exist. It's just vast, the universe. If the universe is vast, how much bigger is our God in his power and in his might? God is beyond anything that we can fathom. It's easy to forget the, the vastness and, and holiness of God as we go about our daily lives. But coming close to God is not something that we are to do lightly. We see this expressed in Exodus, when Moses is going up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 19, verse 12, God tells Moses to put limits around the mountain so that people don't come too close because of the holiness of God. But these soon become unnecessary because in chapter 20, the people see the glory of God descend and then they tremble in fear and stay at a distance. He's holy. And when people say that when I see God, when I get face to face with him, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. I'm going to ask him about this, that, or the other. But when we come before the holy God, we are going to be face down in wonder and awe because of his holy majesty. It's a bit like if you've ever been to a huge bonfire. I remember going to one um, uh, um, when we lived in London, a Battersea, a huge bonfire. And the heat that comes out of that, there's no way you can get anywhere near to it to toast one of your marshmallows. Because the, the heat that comes out means that you can't get anywhere near it. That gives us a small glimpse of what it's like in terms of trying to come before the holiness of God. That's why there are all the laws in the Old Testament for purity. God is holy, and in his presence there is no place for sin. That's why that the sacrifices and penalties were in place. Because when we see the holiness of God, we realize that we all fall short. No one is without sin. The Pharisees had an aim to shame both the woman and Jesus. But Jesus came to bring an end to shame. Because the effect of shame is so powerful. Today, you may be living under the power of words of shame that have been spoken over you. You may have been told that you are worthless, a failure, unlovable. Shame says that not only have you done wrong, but that you are wrong. It's deeply connected with our identity. 
And this has far-reaching impact on our lives. You might feel like that woman, either because of what people said over you or because of what you've done, you might feel exposed, condemned, shamed. Let's notice for a moment the response of Jesus. The Pharisees are trying to publicly humiliate the woman, but Jesus doesn't draw attention to her. He also doesn't humiliate his accusers. They come to trap him with this killer question, but Jesus comes back at them with his answer, leaves them nowhere to go. He's evaded their trap, but there's no sense in Jesus of of mocking them or rubbing it in. There's no lap of honor or a mic drop moment where he's like, ah, I've caught you out. He takes the heat out of the situation by writing on the ground. We don't know what he was writing. Some have suggested it might have been a a writing the the sentence for the sin. Judges at the time would have written their sentence um, and then read it out loud. It might have been he was writing the sins of those who had gathered there so that they knew that Jesus could see their imperfections. We don't know for sure what he writes, but his message is clear. No one is without sin, but Jesus will not condemn. And this is dynamite for shame. It blows it out of the water. If Jesus knows the extent of our guilt and shame, but accepts us as we are, there is real hope. We can think, Jesus can't accept me because I've done this, I've done that. He doesn't really know. But here... We see he does, and there's acceptance from him. Jesus brings an end to shame because our deepest sins are seen by him and forgiven. This is true for the woman. It's true for every member of that crowd. They can know full forgiveness and holiness if they call on the name of the Lord. That's true for everyone in this room today. Jesus brings an end to your shame. But this comes at a cost. Jesus doesn't just pronounce a freedom from condemnation. He took our sin and our shame upon himself. He was nailed to a cross. He was hung on a tree. He experienced pain and humiliation for us at a cost. Um, Imagine Matt comes to me and says, can I borrow your car? I say, fine. He looks like a trustworthy person. Uh, He takes my car and he does a thing that I think we've all wanted to do. And if you've ever been been into a multi-story car park, you want to go as fast as you can. See how quickly you can get right to the top. Matt, have you had the urge? I've done it. Have you done it? <laughs> um, so he does that and pushes a bit too far. He crushes the car and he comes back um, with humility and, and repentance. What needs to happen there? Someone needs to take the cost. Either Matt's going to pay for it or I'm going to pay for it or I'm going to drive around with a big scratch along the side of my car. But somewhere, someone is taking the cost. Jesus takes the cost for us. Because of the holiness of God, for us to come close, the penalty of sin needs to be paid. This is true for the woman, for everyone else, for everyone in this room. And notice in our passage, it's the older ones who realized this first. They were the ones that started to walk away, realizing that they were not without sin. As we walk with God more, we realize how our sin grieves God. And we are more realistic about the state of our hearts. We're sinners. Jesus is upholding justice. This woman has done wrong, but so has everyone else. This is why Jesus came. 
fam- most famous verse in the Bible, John 3:16, "For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life." And notice the very next verse says, "For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him." His heart is to draw sinners like you and me, not to condemn, but to save. There's nothing that you have done that can't be covered by the blood of Jesus when we confess and repent. Jesus comes for the shameless. Jesus comes for us. The woman here was trapped in her obvious sin. We don't see her denying it. There's no escaping it. But the Pharisees were also trapped. They were much better at hiding it. Something that we are often good at as well. The Pharisees were constantly striving to prove themselves good enough. But here we see that Jesus comes for the striving too. The Pharisees added many extra rules to help them to keep the law. And this might sound like a good idea, but what it produced was hearts that were legalistic and rule-focused. And I, I readily identify with this because I'm a rule keeper by nature, just by way of an example. I only had one detention while at school, and that was a whole class detention. So I don't think I was really to blame for that. Um, I hated getting in trouble, and so I made sure that I'll keep every single rule so that I wouldn't get um, a detention or told off or anything. We're so concerned with trying to measure up that there's little room in our hearts for others. And there's a, an easy test for this. Imagine you're sitting in a, a long line of traffic and someone comes and pushes in. What's your immediate response? Are you gracefully, oh, I'm sure you've got busy think, busy life, got lots of things to do, and so you let them gracefully in. Or are you incensed? I'm keeping the rules, I'm sat here. There's no way that you should be able to, to push in. We see the same, though, with our attitudes to work, to parenting, to finances. I'm keeping the rules, or at least my interpretation of them, so so should you. But trying to be good enough the whole time is exhausting. Notice the repeated questioning of the Pharisees in verse 7. They kept questioning him, kept going at Jesus. They didn't let up. We may be those who are always looking out for the mistakes of others, big or small. But this isn't where we should be investing our time and energy. As adults, we don't want to be a people trapped in legalism without love. John Tyson writes in his book, The Burden is Light, that Christianity is supposed to be defined by love. But Christians are often viewed as judgmental hypocrites. And it's a real challenge to us. He notes one research group who revealed public perceptions of evangelical Christians Okay, are you ready for the list of what the perception of, of Christians this research group found? It says that they were called illiterate, greedy, psychos, racist, stupid, narrow-minded, bigots, idiots, fanatics, nutcases, screaming loos, delusional, simpletons, pompous, morons, cruel, nitwits, freaks. And that's just a partial list. It goes on to say, some people don't have any idea what evangelicals actually are or what they believe. They just know they can't stand them. It's a real challenge to us, isn't it? That the reputation of the church in the world. Because we have been transformed by grace, we surely should have that reputation of grace going into the world. 
John Tyson goes on to say, there's nothing more tragic than for people to come to the church hearing rumors of mercy, but leaving with a burden of guilt. Nothing more tragic for people to come to the church hearing rumors of mercy, but leaving with a burden of guilt. It's good for us to be assessing this. If people are amongst us, do they find mercy or do they find guilt? Do we, they find a sense of, we, you need to fulfill this criteria. You need to measure up or we can't accept you. We can't have you amongst us. James 2 verse 13 says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And this is what Jesus is living out in our passage Judgment sees the issue, but mercy sees the person. Jesus calls us to live out the do not judge command. Church is to be different. Satan is the accuser. Jesus is our advocate. We are not to be those who strive. We're not to be those who judge, but we are to be those who have this culture of mercy. And we can only do this from a foundation of grace. We can only do this as we see and know Jesus. This woman is transformed because she is with Jesus. The Pharisees need to come and know this life-transforming experience as well. Because Jesus brings an end to striving. He's perfectly fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled every righteous requirement. He's taken our sin and given us his perfect works. Paul in his letter to Ephesians brings this incredible news to those who are striving. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. It's page 1174 in these Bibles. This is what Paul says in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. We were dead in transgressions. And notice that when you're dead, not much is expected of you. You don't need to pay council tax. You don't need to go work. You're not expected to be the life and soul of the party. When we're completely dead, there's, there's nothing that we can do, be doing. Without God's work, we are we are dead. But we've been made alive by the grace of God. It's totally down to him and not by our works. Verse 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. If you're sitting here today feeling overwhelmed by all the things that you need to be doing, you're not feeling good enough, let these words bring life to your soul today. Jesus has done it all. He brings an end to striving. We are free. And we can notice our hearts are less judgmental. When we see that car cutting in, we can bless them in the name of Jesus because we are living in the good of his grace. Salvation can only be found in Jesus. We can't get there by ourselves. There's a call for Jesus today for all those who are weary. He comes to those who are striving. My third and final point I want us to see is how Jesus brings transformation. After everyone had gone, Jesus speaks to the woman. He's shown her mercy, and now he calls her into a transformed life. Jesus says, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus comes for changed and transformed life. 
Not because we need to keep the rules, but because we have encountered Jesus. We've encountered his love and mercy and grace. And now we can live differently. Jesus calls us out of shame, away from rules and into relationship. We don't know what the woman did. We don't know how she lived afterwards. But we have a choice, don't we? How are we going to live after encountering Jesus? When we see the holiness of God, the extent of our sin and the grace of God given to us, this must overflow into a changed life. And it's important to know the difference between conviction and condemnation. Jesus has delivered us from shame. Romans 8 verse 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is a conviction of sin. The difference is condemnation is oppressive. It says that we're no good. It leads us to a place of despair. But conviction brings about a positive change. It says because of who God is, what he has done, I want to walk differently. I want to live in a way which pleases him. We're not to slip back into legalism, but daily receive God's grace to live in step with him. Pastor John Piper says, enjoyment of Jesus is not like icing on the cake. It's like powder in the shell. Because enjoying God brings incredible power for a changed life. As we enjoy him, we want to live in a way which pleases him, which honors him. To live out the the fruits of the spirit of love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And notice that they are fruits. They're not something that we are working towards as we live in step with him. We notice that our anger overflows less. Our patience is increasing. Our generosity with our time is increasing. We're drawing people in rather than pushing them away. Jesus called the woman to leave her life of sin, and he calls us into grace-fueled good works. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And then verse 10, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God's prepared Good works for us, but it needs to be fueled by grace. I don't know if you've ever run out of petrol. I've only done it once in the middle of nowhere in France. But if you run out of petrol, there's no point trying to push the car for any distance of time. You're going to feel exhausted. And that's exactly what it's like trying to live as a Christian without the fuel of grace amongst us. How are we going to live a transformed life? It might be saying no to a particular sin that's getting a foothold in our lives. I encourage you to take time for confession and and seek prayer. Remember, this is about conviction, not condemnation. We want to be living totally for him and to have an impact on our lives. And then finally, as I close, um, Kenneth Bailey, writing on this passage, says that Jesus lives out the core meaning of the cross. He offers the woman a costly demonstration of unexpected love. We don't know the end of the story, but it makes it think about us. How do we respond to costly love of God offered on the cross to the world? How do we display this to those around us? 
Jesus stands alongside us. He meets us where we are. We don't need to pretend. We don't need to clean ourselves up. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus brings an end to shame and an end to striving. He sets us free and transforms our lives by his grace. And he calls us to share this message of mercy and grace with a broken and hurting world that's around us. So in a moment, we're going to worship some more. We're going to respond. And I'd love for God to be at work in lives where we need to know freedom from shame, freedom from striving, and fresh grace to fuel us for good works. Can I invite us to stand? And as we've seen, transformation comes when we encounter Jesus. And I'd love just to read some words of Psalm 103 over us and let these words sink into our hearts and bring transformation. So I wonder if you just close your eyes, uh, if you're happy to, just open out your hands so that we can receive from him. Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He forgives all your sins. Just take a moment to rest in that truth. All your sins are forgiven. And he heals all your diseases. There's a totality about the wholeness which God brings. He redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. We deserve to be far away from a holy God, but he draws us close and with grace crowns us with love and compassion. He satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Lord, we do thank you for these wonderful words. We thank you that you meet us where we are, that you bring an end to shame. Thank you that mercy triumphs over judgment. We thank you for the victory at the cross. We pray, Holy Spirit, Will you fuel us for lives lived for your glory? And that we will declare that our God is compassionate, gracious, is slow to anger, abounding in love. But will you continue to rest on us as we worship? Amen.